Hello and welcome to a special edition of You News. I'm Andrea Linares reporting from home as we continue working remotely to bring you the latest on the coronavirus pandemic. With the U.S. reporting more and more COVID-19 cases and deaths and unemployment surging, the White House frantically tries to reopen the U.S. economy. New data shows African Americans and Latinos are disproportionately affected by the virus. We talked to a survivor who endured an ordeal at a Delaware hospital. And with medical teams around the world continuing to face a critical shortage of protective equipment, ordinary citizens are stepping in to help. We'll meet two of those everyday heroes. With the coronavirus crisis continuing to grow worse, the Trump administration is targeting early May to reopen society. But that plan could run afoul of advice from medical experts who say we could be experiencing the peak at this very moment. For Governor Andrew Cuomo, it's a tough balance, mourning the loss of thousands of New Yorkers while seeing some positive signs in the decrease of hospitalizations across New York State. It's an emotional time. It's a stressful time for everyone. Uh, it's not going to get better anytime soon. That's the truth. We are flattening the curve. We have to maintain it. But the human cost here, the human toll, the suffering uh, the, is just incredible. Early data shows African-American and Latino people in New York City make up 62% of reported fatalities, although they're about half of the city's population. I also believe the frontline workers do have a greater exposure uh, than most people. I think that's one of the things we'll find when we do this research on why is the infection rate higher uh, with the African-American community and the Latino community. Meanwhile, models often cited by the White House suggest coronavirus-related deaths could be lower than initially projected thanks to social distancing. That is modeled on what America is doing. Still, Dr. Anthony Fauci reminding Americans the upcoming weeks and months will be extremely tough. The most striking thing that obviously is so sobering to us is when we see the number of deaths. We know now for sure that the mitigation that we have been doing is having a positive effect, but you don't see it until weeks later. For the essential workers like first responders and grocery store employees keeping the country going. The CDC issuing new guidelines for those who may get exposed to the coronavirus, saying they can return to their jobs if they are asymptomatic, take their temperature before work, wear a face mask at all times, and practice social distancing. One of the most important things we can do is keep our critical workforce working. People familiar with the discussion saying the White House is examining ways to reopen the U.S. economy as soon as May. But officials like California's Governor Gavin Newsom say it's too soon to lift safety guidelines. While the curve is bent, been bending in the state of California, it's also stretching. And at any moment, if we pull back, you can see that curve go back up. The nation's top infectious disease doctor agrees. We need to keep mitigating. We know that this is something that is a strain on the American public, but it's just something that we have not only the only tool, it's the best tool. 
New data emerging from different hotspots around the country show an alarming statistic. African Americans and Latinos are disproportionately affected by coronavirus. Public health experts say it could be because of factors that make minorities more vulnerable, like lacking health insurance, having pre-existing conditions and implicit bias, making them more likely to be denied testing and treatment. And that's what happened to our next guest, Jeremy Mullen of Dover, Delaware. He survived coronavirus. Let's take a look. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jeremy. I understand that you are 30 years old. You actually have pre-existing conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, as well as um, asthma. So from the get-go, you were pretty vulnerable to catching COVID-19. Can you take us back to when this all began? How did this happen? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, on the, I believe it was the 19th and the 20th, uh, I had been to work, uh, not really experiencing any symptoms. Uh, that Friday, Saturday, it all changed. I could, when I woke up, I couldn't move. I couldn't move. I could barely breathe. Uh, I had a temperature. Um, I, I wasn't feeling well at all. Well, I didn't go to the hospital until Monday morning around two o'clock. At that point, uh, my breathing was so severely impacted that I could barely move. So I decided to go to the hospital. Um, once I went to the hospital, there was no one in the ER. Um, I was able to be seen rather quickly. They gave me a gamut of tests, including uh, checking my temperature. My temperature was 103 degrees. So at that point, they decided to test me for the flu. Um, once my I waited about an hour and a half. Once my flu came back negative, they used that same culture to test for uh, COVID. You stayed at the hospital at that point? No, they released me. They didn't give me any medicine, knowing that I couldn't breathe, knowing that I was having uh, severe symptoms. They just released me. They just told me that they thought it was nothing that they could do for me in the hospital that I couldn't do at home. And they just told me to quarantine and treat this as if it was the cold or the flu. I was out of work all week. I had been calling the hospital and the corona management virus team, telling them that I can't breathe. Um, I'm, 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 I'm obese. I have high blood pressure. I have diabetes. And they were basically just telling me to stay home. Uh, Saturday evening, um, I talked to my uncle and his wife, who's a nurse, and they told me that a hospital cannot refuse to see you. If you have stuff that is bothering you to that point, they have to treat you. So I wind up going to the hospital. And that Saturday, the 28th, is when my uh, COVID culture came back positive. By that time, I was, in a, I was in a bad way. I was very bad. I could not breathe. I could not move. My muscles hurt. I had a still temperature that was consistently 103 degrees. I was in pain. It was unlike anything I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, so when I finally went in Saturday, after they finally saw that I had a positive COVID test, um, they were still dragging their feet. I was the only person in the emergency room, no one else in the emergency room. And I made a comment that said, um, who do I have to call for to start getting help? Although I believe that it was a very uh, distasteless comment and in hindsight I probably wouldn't make it again uh and no way did I feel like I was threatening anybody um one of the security guards and nurse 
one of the security guards didn't have a mask on. And he ultimately uh, pressed charges saying that he felt that he was threatened. So in addition to going through the COVID, I now have the legal uh, mm -hmm. aspect of things I'm going through as well, which is just, just ridiculous. Why did you think the hospital reacted in such a manner? They were not prepared. Um, it's clear they were not prepared. They, they, weren't, they weren't overwhelmed with patients. There was nobody in a hospital bed in the hallway. Uh, people were in rooms. They had no patients in the waiting room. They were just unprepared. I sat in my, my room uh, asking to use the bathroom for two hours. And because of the fact that I was a positive COVID patient, they didn't want to move me to risk transferring, you know, the, the virus. So instead of letting me use the bathroom, they didn't have a backup plan for COVID patients who needed to use the bathroom. So I just sat in my room and couldn't use the bathroom. And I wasn't allowed to use the bathroom until I was ultimately transferred to where I would be in my room upstairs. I wound up developing pneumonia in both of my lungs as well. I was on oxygen for about three days. Well, Jeremy, I'm just right now happy to see that you're home and I hope that you continue to recover and that it goes smoothly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. The coronavirus is impacting those from all walks of life, but the elderly appear to be particularly vulnerable. And as Grecia Lastra explains, it isn't just physical ailments that worry experts. It's also the group's mental health that's at risk. As the global coronavirus crisis rages on, one group of people is being hit the hardest, the elderly. At 76 years old and trapped at home, Florencia Rodriguez talks through her experience with a psychologist. Yesterday was a tough day. I spent the entire day sleeping. Today, today I'm feeling a little bit better. Social distancing and widespread lockdown measures are keeping seniors safe. But many say that being trapped in their homes is bringing on anxiety, frustration, and depression. Two separate patients have told me that they have contemplated suicide. One told me he wanted to drown himself in a nearby river. He said he didn't want to talk to me anymore, that he was desperate. He told me that he didn't want to go on living and he didn't think that he could handle the situation for much longer. At the same time, millions, instead of being at home, are currently in a long-term care facility or other centers for the elderly. Hundreds have died as a result of the pandemic sometimes because of negligence on the part of those facilities, many making headlines for not having taken proper precautions when the outbreak first started. Experts say that that is now changing, that assisted living facilities and other centers are taking better steps to stop the virus. But the damage has already been done. You have to realize that the virus has an incubation period. So even if protective measures are taken now, there are still chances of increased transmission. And if those same measures then fall by the wayside, cases are going to go up, not immediately, but down the line. But what about those with family members currently inside those senior care centers? Well, it depends on the center, the quality of care there, and when they have started implementing more strict preventative measures. I would ask all those questions and then make a decision. Reported by Lourdes del Rio, this is Grecia Lastra for You News. It's devastating to find yourself in prison at just 24 years old, especially knowing you're more than likely to spend more than a decade behind bars. But that's exactly what happened to Caridad Galan Jones. And now she faces a new challenge amid the coronavirus outbreak. Roger Borges explains. 
1991, Caridad Galan Jones' life took an unexpected turn. I don't know where they came and locked me up. Being married to a person that was involved in illicit activity and not really telling on them. And that's one of the things that, you know, you don't question a husband. You don't question, especially of Hispanic descent. But a serious accusation by authorities was about to change everything. Her charge? Conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute. I think when I go to my grave, I will never, that will probably be on my tombstone because I will never forget those charges. She was 24 years old. The consequences for her actions more than 10 years behind bars for possession and intent to distribute a controlled substance. Being locked up for a decade was the most difficult time of her life. And there's days that you, you break a cold sweat in the middle of the night thinking that you can't breathe and you can't, you can't. It's like somebody sitting on your chest and you can't. You can't breathe at night, you know, thinking, how's my child, is he okay? Her son Carlos was just five years old at the time. I didn't even have a chance to say goodbye. Mm -mm. They just took me. In the year 2000, when Caridad was 36 years old, she was set free. During the next nine years, she lived in different cities and worked in the administrative field. It was in the year 2009 when she got here to Pensacola to begin a new chapter in her professional life. An opportunity came open to work from home, and I took that. I ran with it. She works as an interpreter from the comfort of her home, a fulfilling job that allows her to help others, especially now that we're dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. We contacted her via Skype to see how she was doing. Do you think now, because of the situation we're in right now, you are able or have the ability to help more people that perhaps have more questions as to what's going on? These people are calling to find out uh, places where they can go to get screened or what are my symptoms and, and how can I find out if I do have this uh, virus. You know, just I'm the third person, I'm the invisible person in the conversation. Her family has been financially impacted by the medical crisis. How has this impacted um, your husband? You're still working, thankfully, but this has also impacted your husband, correct? It has. Uh, I only work part-time. So he's a full-time worker. And as a barbershop owner, he has to close because he is on hand services. Despite some of the adversities she's facing due to COVID-19, she stands behind what she told us the first time she welcomed us into her home. She's full of gratitude for the second chance life has given her. I'm happy. I can right now go out there and scream to all the winds of this earth that I'm very happy. In Pensacola, Florida, Roger Borges, U News. The restaurant industry has been hard hit after officials forced them to shut down. But some restaurants are turning their empty dining rooms into assembly lines. One of those is Alter in Miami, a high-end restaurant which is turning out hundreds of meals for area hospitals. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on U News. First of all, Brad, if you can explain to us um, a little bit about the initiative, donating all these meals to hospitals. Um, where does the idea come from? Well, you know, we're working with uh, Frontline, who helps organize with World Central Kitchen, and World Central Kitchen clearly has been disaster relief feeding meals around the world for 
a few years now making headlines. And so it's an honor to work with such an amazing organization. And also at the same time, it's an opportunity to put our team members back to work and while they provide something incredible for the community. Um, so we try to do uh, different meals every single day. Uh, we're servicing three to four hospitals a week. And this week we're slated to do uh, 750 meals. What are the logistics look like? Because it's not an easy task. You know, it's not an easy task. And also coordinating with the hospitals and uh, God bless them. They are just so busy and over inundated um, that we're just trying to bring them hot food, something delicious and something to look forward to while they're taking care of our community. And so we have our own, our fine dining servers are now delivery drivers and uh, it's a big 180 turn. You know, this is actually really uh, a really special cause also because Brad's mom, she is a nurse. So, you know, it kind of hits home also. Right. She's on the front lines back home in Kansas City. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing task that you guys are doing. Soraya, can you talk a little bit about how this whole crisis is impacting your group and not only the industry? Um, because you guys own a lot of restaurants in South Florida. Yes. Well, you know, having five uh, places that gave people jobs, that has been like the biggest thing for us. You know, it's um, it's really it's been really tough and emotionally for us, I think. You know, it, it's been um, kind of hard to think that we have to employ, you know, so many people and that we are taking away their livelihood if we don't keep them employed. So we're trying um, as much as we can. I mean, these people are our family. We see them every single day, see them much more than our family. Uh, some have worked with us for years and, and we're trying to return that to them as much as we can during these times. But I also wanted you guys to talk about um, a fundraising campaign that you've yeah. put together for restaurant workers. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, that tied back to, you know, yeah. wanted to keep our employees, uh, you know, fed. Well, taken for them. care of, yeah. yeah. And we were just thinking, you know, all the restaurants that had to lay off, you know, most of their employees. So this came about with a friend, Felix Benderski. Um, to do small grants. Yeah, it's the uh, Miami Restaurant Employee Relief Fund, and uh, we've already raised over $90,000, and uh, the grants are $250 each. Uh, we've gotten incredible uh, feedback and letters from people that just truly, truly needed it. I mean, $250, um, that's a cell phone bill and, and maybe an order of groceries, and that goes a long way for some people that really need it. And Shout out to the Miami community for helping raise over $90,000 already. Well, thank you so much, Brad and Soraya, for the work that you're doing. We appreciate it here in South Florida. And for more information on how to apply for a grant or donate, look for Miami Restaurant Employee Relief Fund on GoFundMe.com. It's a scene that has been playing out across the country. Hospital workers facing personal protective equipment shortfalls as they try to treat patients diagnosed with COVID-19. But in Southern California, several people came together to help change that. Luis Sandoval brings us their inspirational story. These are the happy faces of doctors, nurses, and other hospital personnel after receiving face shields made by Claudia Soto. She has been dropping them off at hospitals across Southern California. I have a friend who works at a hospital, and she told me they had a huge need. They needed to protect themselves with face shields, and they didn't have enough. 
This was one of the designs that we started with, but it takes four hours to make. The front part of the shield was originally made with 3D printers, but the process was way too long. So Ivan created a prototype that was much simpler, easier and faster to make. So now what we're doing is cutting with a laser. This design takes only a minute to cut, so we went from four hours to a minute. With this first design, we can make 50 per day. But with this new one, if we work all day, we can make 4,000 face shields. And then, Claudia went out and solicited funds to buy materials, manufacture face shields, and deliver them to hospitals. When I put this on Instagram, people started donating immediately. We've been doing this for a few weeks. Everyone is so excited for the help they're getting, whether it's coming from us or from other people. They're happy that the community is here, supporting them. I feel proud, appreciative, and emotional. Because I've been talking to the nurses and everything they're going through at work and with their families, it's very emotional for me. Luis Andoval, U News. That's all the time that we have for you news, and tomorrow we will return once again with much more. For now, stay home, stay safe, and until next time.